Well, good morning, church. Did you get an extra hour of sleep today? <laughs> Isn't this terrible? I mean, if I were president, I would remove daylight savings time. Or one of them. We'd just quit. We'd quit this nonsense. I've got uh, some friends in Arizona. I'm Scott Weatherford, by the way. Um, I've got some friends in Arizona. Arizona just refuses to change their clocks. I like Arizona, don't you guys, in that aspect. But uh, good morning. So if you're a little sleepy today, I understand. And if you choose to watch us online today, I understand that as well. But we're going to have a great adventure as we go through the series on signs, talking about what Jesus revealed himself in the, through the Gospel of John to us. And we're leading up to Easter weekend. Easter weekend is going to be incredible here. Uh, we made some decisions about Easter. I think they're really going to bless you. On Friday night, Good Friday, we're going to have a special gathering here at our church. We're going to gather about uh, and have communion together on Good Friday evening. Does that sound like a great, a great evening for you guys? So there's one of you that thinks it's great. I know it's early. There's more coffee. Uh, but we're going to have a Good Friday gathering centered around communion. Then Easter Sunday morning, three gatherings, 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11. So you mark the time. Maybe you want to come to one and serve one. That would be amazing. Uh, maybe you bring a friend to three of those. That would be even more amazing. People come to Jesus best on the arm of a trusted friend. So you be that friend that motivates them. And so we're preaching to Easter right now as we start the book of John. So I got to ask you this question. And this is the question that I think reverberates the walls of culture today. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? When I was a senior at Florida State, I took a class in New Testament survey of the New Testament with a Jewish professor. That was interesting. And our final was, the final question was, prove the historical Jesus. That was the only question. And we had a blue book. Back in the day, we had a blue book. And we had to write out the evidence that demanded our attention. Who is Jesus? Prove the historical Jesus. Now, I know this, and, and I think you're going to, well, I think you're going to know this in a second, that the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most accurately documented event in ancient history, more so than any of the rulers of Pharaoh, the rulers of Rome, the writers of antiquity. Jesus Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection is historically evidenced in biblical, extra-biblical, and eyewitness accounts. And those three things are pretty valid. If you're a lawyer and you have two witnesses, then you're probably going to win your case. If you have 500 eyewitnesses, it's irrefutable. 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's irrefutable. The movement that was launched, even to the peril of those who served. Everyone except for John was martyred. Every one of his disciples were martyred except for John. He was boiled in oil, threw on the island of Patmos, then wrote the Revelation. So who is Jesus? The most compelling, dynamic, controversial, discussed and debated person, God, in all of humanity. So here we're going to look at uh, the book of John. C.S. Lewis said this about Jesus. I love C.S. Lewis, the the uh, theologian, philosopher, writer, uh, scholar from our last century, he said this, that, that Jesus is either a madman, a demon from hell, or the Lord of life. If he is who he says he is, there's no neutrality with Jesus. 
Either you accept him or you don't. You can't stay neutral when it comes to Jesus. Now, I hear people say that to me, that they're neutral about Jesus. Well, that's a fallacy. You have to either accept him or you don't. So in this series that we're beginning today, we're calling it Signs. A sign is a, de- is a direction, reflection, and advertising or something that points beyond itself. If you remember the old comedy routine, here's your sign. When you were behaving poorly or ignorantly, here's your sign. Well, Jesus gives us signs. And John, proving the deity of Christ, being the pastor of this church in Asia Minor, proving the deity of Christ to his people, shows the signs of his deity. And so today we're going to jump into that and we're going to begin with the first sign that Jesus performed in, found in chapter 2. Now right off the bat, you got John the prologue and he sets up the deity of Christ. He talks about his cousin, John the Baptist, who John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What I did this morning, I took my John Journal Bible and I hope you, you got one. If you have it, you can get one today. And I, I read the first four chapters of John this morning. Just read the first four chapters of John and then just made highlights. And John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who had the Holy Spirit dwelling on him from conception, he says, this one who's coming was before me. Now, wait a second. John was older than Jesus biologically. But Jesus existed before time existed. And he said, this one who's coming is greater than me before he came before me. I'm not unworthy to tie the sandals of his feet. And Jesus said this about John. This is the greatest man born of woman. And John saw his position of the deity of Christ. John the Baptist saw the position of deity of Christ, even though he was his cousin, superseding himself and fell in submission to King Jesus. Interesting. And John, the gospel writer, is writing to show us who Jesus is. Now, in this first sign, you find it here in Cana of Galilee. In fact, go ahead and turn your, if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 2. You could follow with me. It's going to be on the screen in a moment when I read it. But I want to kind of set this up. Uh, we begin this journey. Now, how Jesus got to a wedding in Cana is really kind of a mystery. I read a lot of different scholars. In fact, I argued with scholars all week. Now, one of the two things, either I'm arrogant or either I'm arrogant, one of the two. <laughs> and arguing with them, but I told Tara kind of how I positioned myself this week with this, and she said, did you call Stan to make sure you were right? <laughs> I call Stan, and I'm okay. But with this, Jesus was somehow invited to this wedding at Cana, and he shows up. One theologian, Warren Wearsby, said it's always good to have Jesus as a guest at your wedding. I think that's pretty practical. Wouldn't you say the same? Pretty practical, good advice. But it's not clear how he got there. Some think that because Mary was obviously running the show at this wedding, she might have been the wedding coordinator. So after Joseph passed away, she picked up a part-time job as the wedding coordinator at the First Baptist Church of Cana. I think I'm extrapolating just a bit on that one. But anyway, he is there, and Jesus had done no miracles, so at this point in his ministry, he was not well-known. He had, he had just come on the scene, and he was not well-known, and he came with six of his disciples. He didn't even have all 12 yet. He just had six, and they showed up at this wedding. And this, this sign that Jesus did, turning the water into wine, 
was the first sign pointing to his deity. But it's more than that. Now, through the years, I've heard a lot of sermons on this passage. And I've heard people use this passage to teach abstinence from alcohol. I've heard people use this passage to teach you ought to drink alcohol. Well, I will say this, just so you know where I am. I, 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 I don't drink. Tara and I don't, do not drink, and it's a personal choice. I've never seen alcohol do anything good. What I've seen alcohol is bring stupid to the surface. But it's not about that. That's between you and Jesus, what you do with alcohol. The Bible doesn't say do not drink. It says don't be drunk. That's, that's two, different, two different contexts, correct? So you look at this passage and you say, okay, what is Jesus doing here? What is he doing here? And I've heard these sermons that focus on the wedding party and they focus on Mary and Jesus's response to, to Mary. Some of you are offended that Jesus said, woman, <laughs> that doesn't work well at my house, <laughs> woman. But actually in the Hebrew vernacular and what we read there in the Greek translation, it's a very endearing phrase. My, my dear woman, my precious mother, what he was saying. And, and Mary, I think, was probably being a little bossy, but maybe she had a right to be. But some focus on all of these things, but I want to go a little deeper because a sign of Jesus is something that points beyond itself. And I believe Jesus was doing this miracle of transformation to point to something beyond. And if you look at what happens after he turns the water into wine, the encounters he has relationally, I think we have an aha moment. That Jesus wants to do something not just with water and wine, but with you and me, with our hearts. The sign of Jesus found in John are directions, reflections, advertising, something that points beyond itself so that you and I might be changed. So let's go on the adventure and let's see the signs. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you want to say this morning, and I pray that you'll speak through me, that you'll take my fuzzy, muddled mind, and you'll clear it up with your truth through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you just speak to the deep places of our heart, that we might see that there's hope and life and peace found in your word, and that we can be changed. We do not have to be what we currently are. We can be made different by you. And thank you for what you're going to show us this morning. And I pray this all in your son's strong name. Amen. Go ahead and take out your, your notes. I actually go to your note page in your bulletin and, and jot some things down. Let me remind you that online we have five small group curriculums that go with our group curriculums that go with these sermons. Uh, Chad Boak uh, videotapes our, our small group uh, material. And he said to me, now he's done this for about four years for me. He said, what you just recorded on the book of John is the best I've ever heard you do. Now, I don't know if that was a compliment or just like uh, whatever, but I encourage you to go online and watch and listen to the extended teaching we have based on every one of these subjects. And there's five. Now there's seven weeks between, between now here and, and Easter. So there's five small groups. So we're giving you a couple of weekends off, or maybe you need to talk longer in your group about what you've just seen, or maybe go a little deeper about what you've just seen and what you're feeling, what you're hearing. So take advantage of this material and also the John journal. I love getting these New Testament books and these journal forms. 
I love that. Now, I know I have the big, you know, the big Bible with all 66 books, and in fact, I got several of them, but having these little journals gives me a chance to underline and to write and to reflect, and I really enjoy that. And we're going to do that a couple more times for you. Uh, after Easter, we're beginning a series on Moses, and we're providing for you, or actually, you could purchase one of the best books I've ever read on Moses by Chuck Swindoll called Moses. And I think you'll enjoy that read. It's a fantastic read. Chuck Swindoll does a great job of teaching about Moses, and it'll be a complimentary to the talks we'll be given. And then we're going to go through, this summer, we're going through the whole book of Acts. The whole book of Acts, all summer. It's called, the whole series is called Uncommon, how God wants us to be uncommon. And we're going to provide those book of Acts for you as well. So you look forward to that. So let's read together out of John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Let me read and you follow. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Now look at me a second. Now this translation, which is the New Living Translation, I'm using that this today. I usually use the ESV or the NIV. Some people think I use the M-O-U-S-E. But the Living Translation says the next day. In actuality, it was the third day. The third day after John the Baptist had this encounter with Jesus, and Jesus had worked to start building his disciple team. Three days. Now, I read some theologians that just camped out on this three-day symbolism. But I don't think that's significant. I'm just thinking John is saying after three days that Jesus went to this wedding because this wedding was was, um, was arranged and it was scheduled. But, and I, I want to say this to you, we have to be careful when we start studying scripture, not to extrapolate more out of scripture than what's really there. And sometimes we're looking for symbolism. Yeah. And God uses his word. It's living and active and sharper than any two edged sword. It's revealing itself. Everything that's here that's recorded is intentional. It's built upon, built upon, built upon, built upon, But when John says the next day or three days later, it just means the next day or three days later. Are y'all with me on that? So as you read this, you think that Jesus's mother was there and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration, which this reading tends to say that Mary got these boys into the wedding. Now, a wedding in Israel was a big deal. That was a big party. Now, what, this is the Pharisees love weddings because Pharisees were always fasting to show how spiritual they were, but you couldn't fast during a wedding. So if you had a week-long wedding, the Pharisees were eating and they were happy. And so they, they talked about that a lot. And, and Jesus called himself the bridegroom because he said, when you're with me, you're not, you don't have anything. You're not without me. You're not without anything. You celebrated my presence. Celebrate my praise because it's not appropriate to fast during a wedding. It's appropriate to feast during a wedding. So they were there and everybody was happy and they were having a good time. And during the festivities, uh, the wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus's mother told him, we have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. I love the fact, I think this is how it said, Mary came to Jesus and said, Jesus, Jesus, oy vey. there's no more wine. Uh, there's no more wine. And Jesus going, okay, what do I look like? Specs liquors? I... And some of y'all go, you're a Baptist preacher. How do you know it's called specs? Because I've seen that drunken bunny on signs all over <laughs> Texas. You know, uh, it, it just, it's not my problem. But then uh, I love what Mary does. 
He says, it's not my problem, Jesus Christ. My time has not yet come. What he's saying is time has not yet come to reveal his glory. But Jesus knew that this sign was going to happen so his glory would begin to be revealed. And he was talking about the time of his, his uh, crucifixion. But his mother, just she didn't even respond to him. She just turned to the servant and said, hey, do what he tells you to do. <laughs> wow. Is Mary large and in charge or what? She's a compile woman, right? Get it done. Jesus, there's no more wine. You boys, you do what he says to do. And then off they went. So Jesus said, okay, I guess it's my problem now. And standing nearby were six stone jar, water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Now, the ceremonial washing was that they would come and they would cleanse themselves. They'd wash their hands. They'd have these pots of water and they would throw it over the head. And the Pharisees made a big deal out of it. And it was all part of their tradition, that outward purity without inward purity. We want to look good, but we don't want to be good. I grew up in the South in a family that was more concerned about our reputation than our devotion and about keeping secrets instead of being sanctified, more worried about what people were going to say then what about the character and the content of my heart and our hearts? And so this is basically what's happening here. Standing nearby were six water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Those are big pots. I guess they'd gone to Hobby Lobby and picked up the real big pots. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. Why weren't the jars filled with water if they were used for ceremonial washing? Because the washing was done. It was over. And so these empty vessels that represented something were now empty. And Jesus said, fill them, fill them with water. Then the jars had been filled. He said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servant followed his instruction. When the master of the ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where he'd come from, of course, the servant knew. He called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best till now. And this miraculous sign at Canaan in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. They believed him, but they didn't believe in him. They believed in him. Well, I guess they did believe in him. Sorry, my bad. But the deal is here, they believed what they saw. They didn't believe that brought transformation. That would come. That would come. So we see this passage here, and I've heard pastors say, well, you know, when he turned the water into wine, he didn't turn all that water into wine, he just turned that little cup that, that Jesus would that, that servant would bring to the master's ceremony, he'd drink it. So, oh, it's good wine because Jesus ain't going to serve no wine. It was tea, sweet tea. And so we could get into those kind of debates, but really that is not the point. Here's some thoughts I want to share with you. The first thought is that your joy is going to wear out. The joy that the world brings you is going to wear out. And Jesus says, the joy that I want to give you is a supply I will continue to pour out on you. Now, whoa, 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 where'd you get that, Scott? Okay, it's where I got it. Throughout Scripture, wine is an illustration of joy. 
It says this in Psalm 104, 15. Wine to make them glad, olive oil to soothe their skin, and bread to give them strength. Talking about what the Lord has provided for us. Wine to make them glad, olive oil to smooth their skin, and bread to give them strength. In the book of Judges, you have this kind of illustrative discussion about who is going to rule over whom. And in Judges chapter 9, verse 13, but the grapevine refused, refused to be the king in this illustrated story that's being told. Should I quit producing wine that cheers both God and people just to wave back and forth over the trees? And throughout Scripture, now these are just two, there's several more. If we had time, we could look at it that says wine is an illustration of joy. Jesus turning water to wine is symbolic of his joy that's produced in us when we trust in him. And I love this, this illustration. But there was a few more illustrations there, there I want you to see about what Jesus did for the water and the wine. Is that he took the embarrassing situation of running out of wine, therefore running out of joy, and that the bride party, the bridal party, the bride's family, the groom's family would suffer the embarrassment of lack. Jesus stepped in and filled it full of honor and hope. What they had run out of, Jesus had provided. And Jesus wants to do that with us. And it's not just some kind of wine. It was the best wine. What I want to say to you, when you come to Jesus, the world may give you some joy, but Jesus is going to give you the best joy. The best joy. And then he pours this out into our lives. Joy cannot be found outside of the joy that Jesus brings because it runs out. You know, Jesus says to the woman at the well, we're going to get there in a second, he says, I will produce for you a well of living water springing up to eternal life. And Jesus is taking that well of water that's springing up to eternal life to increasingly give us joy in the Lord, which is our strength. Happiness is temporary, and it's come from the external. Joy is internal, and it bubbles up from the Lord. Wow. Mary knew Jesus could bring the joy back into this occasion. Why? Because she was his mom. And she watched him. And she knew him. But Mary had to come to a point of faith just like everybody else did. You know, we sing the song at Christmas, Mary, did you know? And Mary didn't know fully. But then she knew fully when she trusted in this one who brought the joy. Mary knew that Jesus was their only hope. And I love that Mary didn't ask permission. I love it. She's told Jesus the situation, and she expected Jesus to do what Jesus does. And I, I, I want to live that way. That God doesn't want me cowarding before him. He wants me coming to him as a child and say, God, you know the situation, and I'm going to trust you to do what you do, and I'm going to turn to the services, do what he says to do. I want to live my life in such a way that I'm so dependent on Jesus to do what Jesus does that I don't have to try to do what I think I should do. I should follow Jesus and let him do what he does. You know, in leading this church, I feel the same way. That it's not my responsibility to get y'all to do what I want you to do. It's my responsibility to lead you to follow Jesus so Jesus will do what Jesus does. Are y'all are with me on that? We spent this weekend, Friday and Saturday, with our deacons, the diaconos, the servant, and our advisory leadership team, and we were training them about what it means to be a building lives church that honors God. 
And it was really amazing as I saw light bulbs come on with our guys. And they began to dream big dreams. And they began to lean into things that are, that are difficult. And I saw unity emerge. I don't think they got it all. Because I've been doing this for 30 years this way, and I don't think I got it all. But we're together in the unity to let Jesus do what Jesus does. Think about this in your marriage, to let Jesus do what Jesus does. And Jesus brings hope and life and peace and security and comfort and joy. What about in your parenting with your children? Jesus is the one who brings redemption and restoration and wholeness and conviction and life change. What about this in your finances? Jesus is the one who supplies all of our needs according to his riches and glory. What about this in your physical health? He is our redeemer, and he's our sanctifier, and he's our healer. He's our healer. Not this Friday, but next Friday, Dan's going to go undergo surgery. And we were going to have a time of healing prayer for Dan at the end of this gathering, but Leslie's not here, and so we're going to do that next week, and I'm going to be gone. I'm sad about that. I'll be in Costa Rica training pastors because I love Dan and I value Dan. I want to be prayed for. I want to pray with Dan, but Wyatt's going to pray over you, so it's going to be all right. But Dan, we're believing that Jesus is going to heal you, aren't we, church? And we love Dan, and we're going to value Dan. Let's give Dan a little love. Won't y'all do that? Yeah. We have no idea what Dan is facing, but Jesus does, and Jesus will do what Jesus does. And so we're going to trust him with that. And I love the fact that Jesus is intentional. This is about him showing his power over circumstances. That he's the Lord of all, even circumstances. So what water do you need turned into wine? What ceremonial pots have you been laying around empty that you need God to do something great in your life? What misery do you need God to turn into a ministry? What mess do you need God to turn into a message? All of this is to show you that Jesus is the master of change. And he wants to change you. The next thing I, I, I look at this passage and I see this, that we need a new relationship. We need to have a, a relationship with Jesus that realizes Jesus, Jesus was at this party on purpose. He wasn't half a stance invitee. He was there by invitation, not sure how he got there, but he was there on purpose, and he was there through a, by a purpose and for a purpose. Throughout the Old Testament, weddings were the point the people of Israel were to point the people of Israel that they were literally married to God. And so, in our relationship with Him as the church, we're literally the bride. We are the bride of Christ. He is the bridegroom. We are to be married to God. That means there should be an intimacy and a love and a devotion to God that supersedes all others. There should be no one, if you're married, no one in your life closer to you than your spouse, ever. And if there is, you need to make an adjustment. And there should never anybody be any closer. And what God is saying is that, that I want you to have a new relationship with me. Let me read for you. This is Isaiah 54, uh, 54 5. Your creator will be your husband. The Lord of heaven's armies is his name. He is your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of all the earth. In Jeremiah 31, God says this, this covenant will be like the one I made with the ancestors that I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. 
Beulah married to God. They broke that covenant, even though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is a new commandment I will make with my people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within your heart. Wow, deep within them. And I'll write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And what Jeremiah was giving us the foreshadowing and power of the Holy Spirit, when we trust in Christ, he comes and he puts his love in our hearts because he seals us with his spirit. And we're literally married to God. He used the water pots as a symbol of, exter- of internal change. The external washing, the ceremonial, was to point to an inner purity that the people had missed. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to change your insides from ordinary to extraordinary. I'm going to work in your heart. From being empty water pots to being full. The first sign of Jesus was similar to the first sign that Moses performed for the Pharaoh of Egypt. And I love the intentionality. And Warden Wearsby, he kind of went down that rabbit trail for a while, and I didn't go down there with him very long, but I thought it was interesting that Jesus turned water into wine and Moses turned water into blood, and then Jesus would offer up the cup as the new covenant in his blood. And he did that intentionally. Because he was declaring that we need a new relationship. We don't need a relationship of legalism that the law brings. We need a relationship of life that the Spirit brings. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is life and peace. Where the letter of the law is, is legalism and tyranny. We need a new relationship. And Jesus took the embarrassment and he turned it to honor. We're out of wine Oh, we have the best wine. Wow, you guys must be really loaded. I mean, money-wise, not the otherwise. You're really loaded. Hmm. You see, the sign of Jesus was pointing to the life change that he would offer. Looking ahead, Jesus wants to offer you the best life. So let's look ahead. There were three encounters that happened right after this that I believe this sign was indicating those next things. And I want to take you on that journey. I really wanted to get there quicker than I did, but I'm going to take you on this journey. The next thing Jesus, you see Jesus doing is cleansing the temple. He turns water into wine and people go, wow. And then what he does, he goes into the temple. He says, we're going to change this. We're going to change this. He says, what we're going to do is we're going to remove the barriers to people coming to know me so there's access to me. We're going to change your money-making to life change. And he cleanses the temple to give access. But Jesus knew people, and he knows us. And it says this interesting, after he clears the temple, there's some back and forth that Jesus said this, John recorded it, but Jesus didn't trust them because he knew about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature for he knew what was in each person's heart. Now, I find this to be really interesting. He knew what's in people's heart. My heart is deceptively wicked beyond all things. Are you with me? And so is yours. Most of the time, I don't even know what's in my heart. 
Most of the time, I'm going along my life and I do things out of arrogance or, or sloppiness or not paying attention, and, and I don't even know what's in my heart. But I have a Savior who knows what's in my heart. And when Jesus cleared the temple, what he was saying to us, and I believe this is so true, I want to clear the clutter out of your heart so I can give you a new relationship and a new life. I could change the religious landscape so your heart can be changed because I know what's in your heart. And I chased that for a while in, in, in my study and I thought, why would Jesus clear the temple that he would say he didn't trust me because he knew there was heart? And then the Holy Spirit says, God, I know what's in your heart and what's in your heart is not that hot and I want to fill your heart and fill your mind. I want you to be like me. Because everything we do here is about Jesus and how we become like him. I want you to have a cleansed heart. And then I thought this, okay, the temple's destroyed. Wait a second. I'm the temple of God. The spirit of God now lives in me. That the dwelling place of God is in the heart of those who believe. You're the temple of God. And he wants a clean temple for his glory. I got convicted. Y'all just got quiet. You see, he knows we need this change. And then the next encounter he has in chapter 3 is with a guy named Nicodemus. A guy that on the externals looked like he had it together. A guy that was a Pharisee. A guy that was a, a student of the law. A guy that was religious. You could might even call him Pastor Nicodemus. Pastor Nicodemus. And Jesus has a life-changing encounter with him. And just as sure as he turns the water into wine, he takes a religious legalist and he turns him into a believer. And he strips away the labels of religion from him and puts him in the new spirit. He said, Nick, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nick's going, what? Do I have to go back in my mother and be born again? That's creepy, Jesus. He says, no, 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 no. You're not understanding. You need a heart change. And I'm going to take you from being a religious legalist to being a guy with a soft, tender heart that lives all for me. And what's going to happen, Nick? And he didn't tell him that night, but what happened with Nick, he took Nicodemus, a guy that was hiding in the secret, and he brought him to the forefront, for Nicodemus was one of the ones who asked for the body of Christ after, after his crucifixion. Nick went public with the private. Nick was probably a part of the 3,000 at the day of Pentecost. Nick was probably part of the 100,000 in the church of Jesus Christ. Nick was probably a group leader, had people in his home. Because God had taken this guy who was a legalist with a bright mind and he changed his heart to give him the right mind. And he turned water into wine to show that I could take water and turn it to wine. I could cleanse your heart and I could take a religious guy and I could change him. That's the sign. And then there was one other thing he pointed to. It's found in chapter 4. He took a broken woman who everyone knew, and he changed her. I love the fact that Jesus did this, boom, 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 changed the structure of religion, changed the religious man, and then took a broken woman and changed her. 
You know what this says to me? Ain't none of us out of his reach. None of us. And he treated that Samaritan woman who was considered subhuman to the Jewish people. Subhuman. Worse than that, a woman who had had five husbands and now shacking up with a dude who is not only considered subhuman to the Jewish culture, but subhuman to the Samaritan culture. For she had isolated herself where she was coming at the well in the middle of the day. And Jesus says, I can change you. And he does. And he does. And he takes a broken life. And he changes her. And that broken life becomes a flaming evangelist. Because when Jesus heals us, when Jesus changes us, when Jesus restores us, we can't help talking about him unless we're a Baptist. Or unless we're a Methodist or Presbyterian or Catholic. It's time for us to be Christ followers who are grateful for King Jesus. And I look at the transformation that Jesus brings to these people, and I'm amazed that he could do it to me. And he does. And he does. And he could do it for you. And he will. And he could take us, the fellowship of the broken, the fellowship of the legalist, the fellowship that needs cleansing. And he take, take the water of our religion and turn it to the wine of his joy and take our hearts that need purified to purify them, our religion that keeps us in bondage and our brokenness that defines us and changes us and makes us new. A bride worthy of her groom. All for him. Jesus came to change your life. Let him. Here's your sign.